Church has taught the doctrine of resurrection of the dead from the earliest times as a primordial expression of the coming of the risen Lord Jesus in glory at the end of time, the parousia. The Apostles' Creed speaks consistently on the resurrection of the flesh. The Creed of Nicaea, Constantinople, says that we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. The Quicunque, or the pseudo-Athanasian Creed, has the following, and at his coming all will rise up, each with their own body, to give an account of their deeds. Paul VI, Creed of the People of God, death will be destroyed on the day of resurrection when these souls will be united with their bodies. The whole question of identity came up in the last talk, but I'm not going to get involved in that particular issue. Likewise, the Catholic Catholic Church gives ample expression to this fundamental belief and hope of Christians. Yet the return of the risen Lord Jesus in glory, the parousia, will involve not only the universal resurrection and judgment of humans, but also, according to scripture, the destruction, purification, and renewal of the material cosmos, what scripture calls the new creation. Um, this is especially so in the, in the Revelation, several texts in Revelations, and also 2 Peter in chapter 3, the new heavens and the new earth, and also, inseparably, the final judgment of the living and the dead. In other words, the human process of death and resurrection, on account of its profound realism, requires a kind of parallel death and resurrection process on the part of the entire cosmos, which is entirely renewed and where justice will be established forever. Thomas Aquinas puts it as follows. The whole of bodily creation will be appropriately changed to be in harmony with the state of those who will then be living. It all sounds so simple. God reveals to us our ultimate destiny, both cosmic and corporal. This is the faith of the church, or better, the hope of the church. But of course, the genesis and implications of these doctrines are no simple matter. We've heard a lot about the implications. In other words, how does this doctrine in the last conference, uh, Professor Root, uh, the, the, the implications, in other words, the influence of these doctrines on uh, reality uh, and uh, the, the, our understanding of the world. But here I am convinced in this paper that the genesis of these doctrines is of more ultimate uh, interest than the implications. In other words, where, it actually, where they actually came from. And thus the question, where and how did these doctrines arise and consolidate? To what concerns did they respond? Concerns of the theological, anthropological, moral, physical, and doubtless scientific kind. It might seem as if I hear I'm kind of doing a history of dogma, um, as if, as if uh, the dogma wasn't something that is revealed. But, of course, it's revealed through a long process. Anyway, I don't want to get involved in that particular issue of uh, fundamental theology. But there is a history to dogma. Dogmas grow out of situations in which uh, the word of God and the light of God are present. Four methodological uh, observations should be made in this process. I'll get to speak about some of them later on, but not all of them. That's it. They're in the, the sheets that I, that I gave you. The first, that the disciplines of theology and science are clearly involved here, but also philosophy. 
The latter should be considered a bridge discipline between the two, for contributions of philosophers are essential. Now, there's the idea that, you know, I've often wondered, will it be possible with the way people are living on to, you know, 90 and 100 and 110, 120, will somebody be able to do a little bit of what Thomas Aquinas did when he was sort of 46 or 47? Kind of, to kind of get everything into the same head, into one head, you know? Will that ever happen? You know, somebody will be able to think about the faith, no science and no philosophy at the same time. Maybe it's, maybe it's impossible. But anyway, for me at least, it's, a, it's an aspiration that we shouldn't uh, break away from because I think one of the great problems of university work that we're all aware of is uh, that of uh, hyper-specialization. People know their areas very well, but they need to be able to dialogue with other areas. Okay, well, I've made my point there, and I'm not going to go back and forth. Second area, I intend to present the following ideas in the coming pages. The doctrine of universal resurrection, inseparable from that of the renewal of the cosmos, is contextualized in four ways. In the Old Testament, by the question of divine justice, and divine justice. In the New Testament, by the reality of salvation through Christ in the Spirit. In the patristic and medieval period, by anthropological concerns and ethical concerns as well. And in modern times, in the context of scientific cosmology. I think it's fair to say that just as the promise of resurrection determined that of renewal, renewal of the cosmos, so also in the history of thought has anthropology determined cosmology. Most of this paper will deal with the former. In other words, the question that came up earlier on of the anthropocentrism of, uh, of, uh, of Christian eschatology and the question was how could sort of an event that took place in Palestine 2,000 years ago have an influence on the whole of the cosmos. I and mean, that just seems to be out of proportion huh? with all the billions that come in uh, in different directions. The third place. We may observe that the development of the notion of resurrection and cosmic renewal follows what might be called a parabolic uh, trajectory in five stages from being as an as yet unrealized promise in the biblical patriarchs to being a transfigured and illuminating reality in the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, among church fathers to being a powerful catalyst in the development of a deeply positive view of anthropology, cosmos and matter destined for eternity, and in particular in respect of the union between body and soul, to being a solid support for natural law and public Christianity in medieval times, and finally, to providing a significant or existential reading of Christian faith in modernity. Each one of these stages would require an in-depth study, which cannot be provided in these pages, but some areas we will be, I'll be looking through them. Fourth and last, the following observation, I think, is important. Um, just to go back to what I said before, the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of resurrection and renewal from its inception experienced pushbacks of many kinds. Pushback isn't a very scientific word, obviously, but it experienced resistance. Uh, the, the common understanding of anthropology, of science, of philosophy, or whatever, just didn't have space for resurrection. 
it was just a sort of seemed to drop out of the heavens and didn't seem to make much sense for people. As a divine eschatological promise, it opened spaces and defined horizons that the thought forms of the period could or would not accept. But resurrection belief ended up leaving its mark and defining culture in a Christian way. That's the topic I deal with in the book that was mentioned there, Faith Challenges Culture, uh, which you may have heard. Besides, the pushbacks, as I call them, contributed to giving a definitive profile to these uh, teachings. The philosopher Gabriel, uh, Gabriel Marcel would go so far as to say that, uh, quote, the promise of resurrection is the soul of history. So the first point, which is on the, your, uh, on the guide that you have, the theological roots of resurrection beliefs. The 20th century exegete Rudolf Bultmann, though he denied the physical and empirical quality of resurrection and therefore its capacity to dialogue with science, really basically said there are two, just two different worlds, uh, had the following to say. The expression resurrection of the dead is a paraphrasis of the word God. Is a paraphrasis of the word God, speaking of the Old Testament, where you say resurrection, you say God is acting. And we are sure of that, he adds, because God is the one who raised Christ from the dead. He makes the connection between uh, the God and then the, the, the New Testament. The radical quality of Christian faith in resurrection is thus rooted in the resurrection of Christ in whom the power and transcendence of God is expressed and which thus refers ultimately to the mystery of creation. For the God who creates everything ex nihilo can create the universe, can raise us up from the dead. The scene for the appearance of the doctrine of final resurrection and renewal is set by two elements. Um, I already mentioned the death and resurrection of Christ. And the other one is, uh, in the Old Testament, very interesting episode, the quest for definitive personal justice uh, as regards its uh, motive or final cause. Um, that's an interesting topic to just reflect on uh, in the Old Testament, uh, that uh, the doctrine of resurrection arose, it became, it became uh, important more and more, uh, in the context of the question, what's going to happen to the just man who behaves well and at the same time gets a rough deal? And why do the, uh, the, the, the evil ones, the unjust, why do they have a good life? So how are we going to solve that problem? And the, 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 it is interesting to see how bit by bit the, the, uh, the purpose of the doctrine of resurrection was uh, the establishment of um, justice, eh? question of justice. Personal resurrection in the Old Testament is proclaimed tacitly on many occasions, quite openly in the book of Daniel. The latter situates it in the context of the persecution of the Jews by Antiochus Epiphanes and the king of the south. The prophet describes the trial Jews underwent and then the divine response communicated through the prophet, which is the following. There shall be a time of anguish such as never occurred since nations came first into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In other words, it's quite clear that uh, it's not just that uh, as if resurrection was just a saving event. Uh, resurrection is the moment in which divine justice is carried out. The text was occasioned by the martyrdom of some of the just in Israel and serves as an explanation on how they will be vindicated. The prophet tells us that God will ensure justice will be done even after death by raising to life both the traitors who persecuted the just and to those who suffered persecution. Theologically speaking, the novelty of Daniel 12 is worthwhile noting. Resurrection is no longer earthbound and collective, no longer earthbound and collective, reserved to God's people as such. This is present in other texts in the Old Testament, Job and Ezekiel, etc. But rather transcends death and is applicable to individuals, both Jews or pagans, on the basis of their actions, whether good or bad. In brief terms, it may be said that in Daniel, the ethical displaces the ethnical. The ethical displaces the ethnical. It's not where, where you belong or who your people are or who are your friends or whatever. It's the ethical behavior that takes over from the belongings. Resurrection is no longer a, sim a synonym of salvation, but is deeply linked with ensuring justice for humanity as a whole. This provides a clear affirmation of anthropological universality and justice, which cannot but involve the cosmic dimension. Resurrection and renewal thus involves one God, one humanity, one judgment, one cosmos, for God will provide justice for all. Number two, the pushbacks. Um, after the establishment of the doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of course, well known, from the very outset of Christian preaching, the perplexity of pagans and of Christians themselves in the face of the new, this new teaching was palpable. When preaching to the Areopagus of Athens, Paul found a woody hearing when he spoke of divinities, rituals, and ethical practice. But when, he, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, we read in the Acts of the Apostles, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you on this again. And when brought before Festus and Agrippa at Caesarea, Paul again spoke of the resurrection, while Festus called out to him, Paul, you are mad. Your great, your great learning is turning you mad. I think we all know this phrase uh, Festus. Among Corinthian believers, there was considerable doubt as regards the resurrection. This explains Paul's insistence to the effect that if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And he replies categorically, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The patristic period, next period. Early Christian writers were keenly aware of the difficulties resurrection belief involved. Origen said the mystery of resurrection is also on the lips of the infidels, but it is a cause of ridicule for them because they do not understand it. Tertullian said, we also laughed at these things uh, one day. Um, Augustine said, no article of Christian faith is more repudiated than the resurrection of the flesh. Gregory the Great said, many doubt the resurrection as we did in our time. Now, there are several difficulties and several reasons why this 
uh, idea, this um, resistance uh, was consolidated. One area which I don't intend to get involved in uh, too much is the anthropological side. In other words, the, the, the commonly accepted uh, platonic uh, anthropology just didn't want there to be any resurrection of the body because the body was considered to be uh, the, the prison of the soul. So what the soul wanted to do was to escape and to get away from the body. But I don't want to get in, involved in that one. But there is a point here which is, it seemed to go against the common sense, uh, against common sense and the laws of nature. Matter and the cosmos, according to the Greek worldview, marked by cosmic determinism and the dualism, are invariably linked with time and corruption and can on no account share in the glory and immortality that belongs only to the gods. The pagan porphyry cites the hypothetical case of a drowned man's corpse eaten by fish and the fish eaten subsequently by the fisherman and the latter by dogs and the dogs by vultures. I'm sorry, you can imagine the scene. Understandably, he poses the question, with what body will humans rise? In contesting the Christian doctrine of resurrection, he spares neither satire nor cynicism. Christian authors replied in a variety of ways to the challenge, the, the cosmological and the anthropological challenge of pagan philosophers. The main argument they offered, however, was a strictly theological one, and from our point of view, perhaps not an entirely satisfactory uh, response. God is the sovereign, all-powerful, faithful creator of the world and humankind. Therefore, he is capable of raising up humans from the dead and has promised to do so by the miracles he worked through Christ and in particular by raising him up from the dead. And this same power will be applied to all humans at the end of time through the spirit of Christ. Justin Martyr, for example, says that we will receive again our own bodies though they be dead and cast on the earth, for we hold that for God nothing is impossible. The medieval synthesis. In the face of the Platonizing tendency that re-emerged during the early Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, taking his cue from Aristotle's theory of the substantial unity of the human composite, anima, forma, corporis, insisted on the centrality of the doctrine of resurrection of the dead, not only as a doctrine of faith, but also as one that is open to philosophical reflection and scientific application. I think he understood that this is something that is a very central, uh, very central mystery. I'm glad to be able to say it in this uh, university in the Angelical. He taught that the soul separated from the body is in a state that is contrary to nature, he says, for the human soul by nature is meant to inform the body. However, the separated soul always retains what Aquinas calls a commensuratio towards its own body, with which it will be united anew at the end of time through the power of God. As a result, he says, resurrection is natural as to its end, insomuch as it is natural for the soul to be the form of the body, whereas its active principle is not natural, but is caused solely by divine power. So from one point of view, it's natural. From the other point of view, it isn't. Interesting uh, distinction there that it makes. In other words, it may be said, uh, somebody who studied this text, his summary was, 
uh, it may be said that uh, uh, um, the, the final cause of resurrection is human nature, but the efficient cause is God. Likewise, Gregory of Nyssa graphically describes the soul, Eidos, recognizing its own body, drawing it to itself, attracting again to itself that which is its own. And the reason why it is possible is that the soul remains united in some way with the body. There is no force that can tear the soul away from its cohesion with its own members, words of uh, Gregory Nyssa. The next section, uh, historically, um, the growing irrelevance of resurrection belief in modern philosophy. The growing irrelevance. And I think that's why I, I spoke of kind of a parable, you know, that it seemed resurrection was a real challenge to uh, anthropology and to ethics and to all kinds of things for a long time, but it became a kind of an irrelevant doctrine. The doctrine of resurrection, both of Christ and of humans, though not denied throughout the later Middle Ages by Protestant reformers and in modern times, gradually came to lose its capacity to challenge and catalyze scientific, philosophical, anthropological, and theological reflection. One reason for this lies in a pervasive return to the basic tenets and, and terminology of Platonic anthropology and eschatology. As a result, philosophy and spirituality came to turn their attention in the name of biblical interiority more and more to the human spirit, uh, subjectivity, the res cogitans, uh, away from the body, res extensa, to use the terminology of Descartes. Philosophers came simply to accord resurrection less and less value. Instead of powerfully challenging humanity's self-perception and the understanding of the universe, faith in resurrection became domesticated, as it were. Immanuel Kant, for example, declared that he saw no reason whatever to drag about a body for the rest of eternity, a body which, however purified it may be, will nonetheless always be made up of matter. That was uh, Kant's uh, angle on uh, resurrection. The result was that the resurrection, the eschatological promise, came to be linked principally with ethical behavior and the individual life of the immortal soul, and no longer with final resurrection, which of its very nature would involve the manifestation of the true state of the individual, not only before God, but also in its bodily integrity before the rest of humanity. Final judgment, divorced from the corporeal, easily lends itself to an ethical and spiritual vision that is individualistic, interior, spiritualistic, subjective, and unheeding of society and nature, both human and cosmic. This approach led in practice to a reductionist, symbolic understanding of resurrection of Christ and of humanity and became quite common throughout the 20th century. The good news of the resurrection of Christ and in him of humanity would refer at best to personal interior life, to the novelty of conversion, would have little or nothing to do with the realm of the material world, of political action, of human bodiliness, of scientific endeavor. Matter with its laws and properties would, as a result, become and remain the exclusive domain of science. Marxist philosophers such as Ernst Bloch developed theories about the origin and development of matter, life, and in the cosmos that with time came to be completely divorced from transcendence. 
also another author who made a very important contribution by reducing eschatology to uh, this world that we're living in only is uh, was Hegel. I don't want to uh, I don't want to get involved in things that Hegel said. The third point then. The third, uh, the 20th century, estrangement and meeting up of theology and science. 20th century, estrangement and meeting up of theology and science. Estrangement. Traditionally, both Catholic and Protestant theologians on the basis of well-known New Testament texts, such as 2 Peter and Revelation 21, took it for granted that the parousia would involve the definitive and total destruction of the entire universe by fire and its posterior renewal through the power of God. As the study of astronomy and physics developed, however, some theologians came to limit the life-giving power of God to our solar system and even to restrict it to planet Earth. It seemed to make little sense to claim that the whole of creation, the immeasurable reaches of time-space, should be linked with the dynamic of Christian faith or could in any way depend on spiritual events taking place on an apparently insignificant planet and was said uh, and was said uh, and, sorry and extending therefrom to the rest of creation such promises should be limited at best to the final resurrection of human beings in fact the popular conviction among believers to the effect that widespread natural cosmic convulsions would mark the end of time gradually came to be considered as naive and even fundamentalist. Precipitated claims by some Christians in respect of the imminence of the end of time merely served to accentuate this impression. Followers of the biblical scholar Albrecht Christian went so far as to claim that what the Bible says about the end of the world finds its true meaning not in a series of cosmic catastrophes affecting the whole of humanity and the rest of the universe, but simply in the death of individuals. This is as much as to say that the world ends with the death of each person, not when the universe is destroyed by fire and reconstituted by the power of God. As a result, developments in the area of physics brought Christian thinkers not only to think twice before linking the Christian parousia with possible mutations in the physical universe, but even to doubt whether end-time events could in any way be related to chronological time, physical matter, and its possible eternalization. Matter and cosmos, it was said, have their own laws, distinct from those of the soul and the spirit, and the saving work of Christ should relate, by right, principally to the spiritual sphere. In approximate terms, it might be said that this approach is consonant with the idea that Christ is saviour of humans, but not the creator of the universe, the world to whom all things were made. And I think that's an important area which has been recuperated, I think, a lot in, in recent uh, decades, uh, the idea that Christ is our creator. Eh? Words, the whole of the universe was created uh, through him, uh, by him, and for him. I think that's a very important point, and he's, he's our saviour as well, certainly, but it's not the only aspect of his life that we have to emphasise. Of particular importance was uh, the biblical exegete I already mentioned, Rudolf Bultmann. He interpreted New Testament and early Christian texts, speaking of resurrection in terms of a personal faith decision 
of an individualistic and existentialist kind. In, charismatic, in that charismatic context, Christ's resurrection can be considered an event, a true event. But he said, a, a true event for the Christian. Through their faith in him, Bultemann would say that Christians have already risen from the dead. Believers are already saved. However, according to him, the physical universe as such is impermeable to the power of grace. And I, there was a text that was already cited there which speaks of, uh, of uh, Bultmann's disdain for the relationship between the miracles of the, the New Testament and uh, our modern scientific knowledge. Thus, New Testament miracles, especially our resurrection accounts, should not be considered as a literal explanation of real events. The term resurrection of the flesh would constitute, according to some authors, a kind of Hellenization of true Hebrew theology that is personal and not substantial, an existential way of reacting to God's word in line with Heidegger. Clearly, Boltman's position undoes the realism and catalytic quality of resurrection belief and has influenced theological reflection in many ways, principally by according material uh, uh, realities and merely symbolic value in the religious order. His teaching has, however, been sharply challenged by both Protestant and Catholic authors over recent decades. In any case, as a result of scientific and philosophical developments, two ideas came to prevail in eschatological thought throughout the first half of the 20th century, particularly among Protestant authors, also Catholic authors, as we saw earlier on, First, that the eschatological texts of the New Testament refer, refer primarily to the ultimacy of the present moment and not to a chronologically displaced future. And second, that the Christian eschaton impinges neither on matter nor on the cosmos, but rather on human interiority, spirit and personhood. Meeting up. Besides, on the scientific front, things have changed quite a lot over recent decades as Newtonian and mechanistic understandings of the physical universe, impervious to the spirit, were gradually improved upon and eventually discarded. Physicists became convinced that the universe may no longer be considered as a fixed, indefinitely extended space, but rather a process of expansion and even of growth. I have written about these issues in a long article written together with the philosopher and physicist uh, Juan José Sanguinetti, Argentinian, and in a recent uh, book on creation theology that was already mentioned, God's gift of creation. In this sense, the future consummation or completion of the entire cosmos may not be excluded a priori on scientific grounds at least at a hypothetical level, whether this be explained in terms of the principle of entropy or the swallowing up of matter in black holes. In any case, uh, I think in this area, two scenarios should be avoided, two sort of, if you wish, extreme scenarios should be avoided. First of all, we know that apocalyptic ideas centered on a full-blown destruction and renewal of our earthly environment have become popular of late perhaps success, excessively so, and not only with the aid of scripture-based speculation, but often with the apparent support of scientific findings. By a strange quirk of faith, 
by a, by a strange quirk of fate. And at the same time as Hegelian metaphysics and Bultmann's epistemology were being discredited and scientific thought became less and less closed to the possibility of a meaningful final consummation, non-cosmic and even anti-cosmic interpretations of scripture were becoming more and more common among theologians and biblical exegetes, even those who understandably looked upon popular apocalyptics with systematic suspicion and disdain. The path to a secular or scientific eschatology is becoming clearer with the passage of time, but simplistic or fundamental reading, fundamentalistic readings are still frequent. Second, some authors, such as the physicist Frank Tipler, imagined the possibility that cosmic evolution, instead of ending in a final disaster, could perhaps reach a form of plenitude and immortality, something that would be thought of if we speculate on the mathematical possibilities offered by artificial intelligence applied to biology to ensure that intelligent life perpetuates itself in the cosmos and manages to dominate its structures and to stop the processes of decay proper to the second principle of thermodynamics. This idea should be combined with the proposals of transhumanism to reach a post-human condition that transcends our limitations, such as aging and death, thanks to the evolution of bio-neurotechnologies. Transhumanism usually refers to the conditions of terrestrial life, and it can also reach a cosmic projection, because eventual transhuman, intelligent beings could leave the Earth and be transported to other galaxies and hypothetically to other universes. These ideas are in the air and are spoken of quite a lot. However, the doctrine of resurrection and renewal remind us, remind us, and it's very important at the point that we saw at the beginning, that life, and especially eternal life, is God's gift, which we receive through the communication of the Spirit of Christ. Conclusion. The Christian parousia, the coming of the Lord Jesus in glory at the end of time, will be manifested in three ways, as the resurrection of the flesh, as the renewal of the cosmos, and as final judgment of the living and the dead. They will constitute the final stage of God's revelation and recreating power within a process that has begun with creation and is consummated in salvation won by Christ and made present in the world by the Spirit. As this divine promise was assimilated by believers in faith, different accounts of the encounter between God's power and the reality of the world emerged. Christian faith, as it were, pressured thought and reality. But faith also experienced what we might call a pushback from uh, uh, reality and thought. Time will tell to what degree Christian faith will be in a position to establish a new, a fruitful dialogue with science as we wait for the coming of our Saviour Jesus Christ when God will be all in all things. Thank you.